Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current events in the world of science. In addition, Professor Ned Wright from UCLA will join us to discuss the Cosmic Microwave Background Explorer. Also, we'll find out why stars have colors. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad. How about you, Charles? I'm I'm feeling especially happy. 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 Are you yes. getting lucky? Well, not not uh, in that way. Oh, what a night, you know. But uh-huh. uh, <laughs> in fact, it's a very special day for us. Here. I believe it is. It is. Uh, what is it? Our second anniversary. Our second year anniversary on the air here. Two years, and we're still alive. And two years, and uh, apparently no one has uh, stormed the gates to uh, stop. Science truth from being broadcast over the air. So what exactly are we? What are, what is Berkeley Grox, Charles? I, I don't know. What what do you think Berkeley Grox is? I thought we were the the uh, afterglow of the Big Bang. <laughs> that's uh, that's certainly one way of uh, putting it. But uh, are we the condom of UCB? You know that's that's certainly probably more apropos than uh, than most would say. More more like the used condom of UCB. <laughs> fact, of course. Um, well, KLX claims to be the unwanted child of UCB, so... <laughs> so, we're the unwanted child's uh, uh, placenta or something, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how far we could take that metaphor, but uh, uh, I guess we never actually have explained what Grox... That's is. right, Grox. I've been, we've been grokking, but we haven't really talked about it, huh? No, in fact, we haven't. Uh, for those who have not checked out our website, www.grox.net... Um, and those who have not read the book uh, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. I haven't read it either. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> uh, at least if you read the certain section, Grox apparently is uh, more or less to have a complete understanding of a subject. Sounds like a religion, man. A subject, yeah. Well, in a way, science can be considered something of a religion, mm-hmm. in a way. So that's what we try and do in this show, Grok Science. So have you, have you grokked any, uh, what, did, what did you, have you thought about the uh, past year, past two years on the air? I feel more confident. Well, I actually talk to people now. <laughs> so before you were just using telepathy, is that right? Well, I was just talking to myself. But okay. Now I talk to people. How do you know they're actually people? They could just be like imaginary... Uh... Yeah, that's true. I haven't figured it out yet. How do you know I'm actually here? How do you know you're actually in the radio station? This could be just a bad dream, it huh? It could be. We can only hope. Because mm. then it will end. We'll wake up. But uh, I don't know. I've uh, I've enjoyed all the cool interviews we've done, so... Uh, I, I love the interviews. I mean, it's like getting your own free private lesson. <laughs> <laughs> you get to pick the brains of the, the people who are much, much smarter than I am, and, and you, and everybody else, I guess. Well, at least they think. <laughs> yeah, that's they're paid to think for a living. It's, uh, it's strange to get kind of reflective on anniversaries. So do you think we have a uh, quorum here today? A quorum? Uh, I say yes. You say yes? Do you say no or yes? I, I disagree. Okay. I disagree too. Okay. I think we've agreed mm. to disagree. 
Uh, well, it turns out bacteria also need to sense uh, their populations as well. Wow, talk about democracy. Indeed. Well, uh, in a process that's called quorum sensing for bacteria, mm-hmm. they actually monitor uh, the number of uh, other bacteria that are in the surrounding uh, environment. Right. Uh, so this is very important, of course, for them to keep track of like how much else is going on in the fluid media to see if there's enough food for everybody, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a partic- number of uh, bacteria have this mechanism, but one particular one called Vibrio harvii uh, has a particular pathway that's mo- uh, basically... Uh, modulated by two protein phosphorylation pathways. These are the uh, auto-inducers 1 and 2. Not 3 and 4? Uh, well, they they haven't discovered a 3 and 4, but uh. 1 and 2 are certainly very cool. Uh, a, uh, the auto-inducer 1 is apparently restricted to Vibrio harvii, and the auto-inducer 2 is found in a bunch of different uh, gram-negative bacteria. So this is kind of cool because it can either sense its own species or all the other species. So can it only sense uh, bacteria within, within its vicinity or like the whole uh, colony or whatever? It's basically within its vicinity. So I guess as the proportion of uh, bacteria increases, they start secreting these uh, factors out into the environment, mm-hmm. and that's what's detected by these two pathways. So this sort of reminds me of the game of life where, uh, you know, what happens in the uh, in one generation depends on, on the... Uh, your neighbors in the previous generation. In, in a way, it's kind of like that. And in fact, uh, the rules, the rule that this thing sort of obeys is in fact uh, uh, very interesting because the combination of the two sensors, the autoinducer 1 and 2, mm-hmm. basically determine how the uh, bacteria will behave. I see. So if one is activated or the second one is activated, it won't be the same thing if both are activated. Right. So both both pathways seem to be acting as like an AND gate, as the, how the... Uh, wow. The... Uh, the authors uh, describe it. So kind of like bacterial computing here. It's huh? a little bacterial computer, the uh, bacterial AND gate, <laughs> for those uh, who are interested in that kind of thing. But this is uh, uh, reported in the uh, EMBO Journal, volume 22, page 870. So do you... Get that extra uh, sensory perception, Charles. Extra, ooh, the extra sensory perception. Mm. I'm hoping to get a little extra sensory perception tonight. You know what I'm saying? You know the one where you can feel the electric field <laughs> in the air. Oh, that one? No. No, I, no. I got the magnetic field. But. Ah, well, it turns out sharks can detect electric fields. Uh huh. And what this uh, professor, Brandon Brown, assistant physics professor at University of San Francisco, has found out that uh, sharks have this gel-filled organ. Oh. And apparently it can sense electric fields. Oh, so does it can contain some kind of uh, electroconductive material? Right. It has some strange property, and uh, somehow it's also been shown that it's uh, dependent on the temperature at which the shark's swimming in. I see. So it's quite interesting because uh, this means we can have biomaterials that could act like semiconductors mm-hmm. and you know, possibly design like biological circuits or what, whatnot in right, the future. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's, that's really interesting because most biological material is highly non-conductive, so... Right. I would imagine this stuff probably has some sort of, you know, ferric compound in it or something right. like that. Right. It's actually uh, sulfated glycoproteins, and it contains uh, various ions, including sodium, calcium, chloride, and uh, I'm not sure about metals, but okay. it's very possible they have some metals in there as well. I, I suppose so, yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. I guess we can uh, wait to have, like, our uh, electric field prostheses around, and we can see all the waves that are being beaming towards us. I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can look at the recent issue of Nature, volume 421, page 495.
So have you enjoyed seeing stars? Seeing stars? Well, I can't seem to see them. My eyes are just too bad. Well, you know, we certainly have had a lot of stars on the program here. Those uh, kind of stars. Those kind of stars, yeah. They're, they're fun. But none as massive or perhaps as diminutive as the M-Dwarf class stars. M-Dwarf? Yes. How small is it? The M-Dwarf class star is about 0.09 times as massive as the Earth. Wow, it's on so a diet, huh? One one hundredth, yeah. So these these are interesting classes of stars, and uh, groups of astrophysicists have actually been looking for these types of dwarf stars in in the um, in the galaxy and actually the universe. But they're very tough to find because they're so small and very um, not very massive, and they don't have a lot of luminance to them. Mm-hmm. So people have searched for a long time. They have very strong telescopes now, and they've begun to find more and more of these M dwarf class stars. And recently, a group by led by uh, this fellow Lepine and others has found a very, very small M-dwarf class star, which they've named LSR-1425 plus 7102. Plus 2.1578. So, actually, you know, there was a thing out where you could actually name your own star a while back. You could buy the rights to name... 30 bucks or so, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. This one definitely needs a name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this star was originally observed with the uh, digitized sky survey, and they followed it up with very spectroscopic observations and such and showed that it was much, much smaller than any of the previously observed M-dwarf stars, and it has what they call a subtype index of 8.0, which puts this in the M-sub-dwarf class. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because it's the lowest mass star found on the main sequence of stars, which is the ordering of stars mm-hmm. based on their size and what they can possibly be. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly cool because if they find more of these meek um, M-dwarfs, it presumably would have important implications for trying to understand how um, stars um, can evolve, especially at these lower limits of their physically plausible masses. Right. So if anyone's interested in learning about the stars in the sky, you can check this out on the Journal of Astrophysics, or actually the Astrophysics Journal, uh, Volume 585, page L69. Star, dude. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Brian Gerke will join us and talk to Professor Ned Wright on the cosmic microwave background. So stay tuned. We're speaking today with Ned Wright, who is professor of physics and astronomy at UCLA and a member of the MAP survey team. MAP is a satellite that measures the cosmic microwave background, and the first data from the MAP satellite was released on the 11th of February. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. So I guess we should start with the basics. You're trying to measure the cosmic microwave background. What is the cosmic microwave background? The cosmic microwave background is radiation that's left over from the Big Bang. When the universe formed, it was extremely hot, but as it has expanded, 
the temperature has fallen until the radiation field that has a very uniform temperature is now cooled off to the point where it's colder than liquid helium. So it's an extremely low temperature now. I see. So uh, what exactly is it that we're trying to measure about that uh, radiation? Well, one of the most interesting things about the background radiation is that it's extremely uniform across the sky. So what we're trying to measure are the very small non-uniformities that do exist when we look at different parts of the sky. So while the temperature of the microwave background is only 2.7 Kelvin, that's absolute centigrade degrees above absolute zero, we're looking for temperature fluctuations that are tens of microkelvin, millionths of a degree from one spot in the sky to another. That's uh, that's fairly impressive, I would say. that That's like measuring, I don't know, very... Um, I mean, if this is basically flat across the sky, then you're measuring... Mm, I, I can't even think of a good analogy for, for something quite that precise. That's, that's impressive. So uh, maybe it's easy to say, why is it that we need to use a satellite like MAP to measure this well? Well, the most important reason for using a satellite is that it allows us to do a very uniform survey of the whole sky. So that really requires that your instrument be incredibly stable. And once you're up in space then you're, we're constantly sitting in, the, in sunlight all the time. So we're very far away from the Earth. And so we do not get eclipsed by the Earth at all. So the instrument's sitting in constant sunlight with a very uniform temperature, and that allows us to make a very uniform map of the whole sky. Now, my understanding is that this satellite is in a fairly um, interesting orbit. Can you tell us a little more about the orbit that you use? The orbit of MAP is designed to keep it um, rather far from the Earth, but not like a planetary probe going off to some other distant part of the solar system. So we're in what is known as the L2 point in the Earth-Sun system. And that means that MAP, the Earth, and the Sun are always on a, a line. So MAP is a million and a half kilometers further away from the, the Sun than the Earth is. And the Earth is 150 million kilometers away from the Sun. So you have the Sun, then you have the Earth, and then you have MAP. 1% further away from the sun than the Earth is. Okay, and that's going to let you always point away from the Earth and the sun, right? Absolutely. So we can observe the half of the sky that does not have the Earth and the sun. We have no really bright nearby interfering objects. So why is it that the the Earth and the sun are going to be a problem for this? I mean, you're working in such a, a low frequency range, and the sun, of course, is uh, is at you know visual frequencies well, we, in the microwave. We are trying to measure... Uh, a few microkelvin. And while the sun is an optical source, it's also a millimeter wave source. The sun is a 6,000 kelvin at the wavelengths we're working at. So if you're trying to measure a few microkelvin and there's a 6,000 kelvin source, then you're basically sunk. I mean, having a source that bright that's a billion times brighter than what you're trying to measure in your field of view is just not going to allow you to get the data that you want. And the Earth is a similar problem with a lower temperature but covering a larger part of the sky. So it is 300 Kelvin, that's room temperature, and it covers a bigger part of the sky when you're close to it. If you were in a low Earth orbit, fairly typical satellite orbit, then the Earth would be a big interfering source as well. But out at the L2 point, the Sun and the Earth are both um, in the same part of the sky, and the Earth is not really a very significant interferer. I see. So this seems like a kind of a kind of a special point. I assume there can only be one satellite hanging out there at a time. How did uh, MAP get lucky enough to be out there? Well, actually, the L2 point, it is a point, but what we're actually doing is looping around the 
L2 point. So we're in what's called an L2 halo orbit or a Lisa Ju orbit around L2. So it's actually a region of space that's several hundred kilometers, 100,000 kilometers on a side. So there's, there's room for lots of satellites, but it's not a stable place. It's like uh, being on the top of a hill. And if you don't continually correct your position, then you'll roll off. Okay. So we've got the satellite up here, and we've, we've, it has taken, what, a year's worth of data now. Is that right? We have a year's worth of data. Uh, it took us uh, almost three months to get from the Earth out to L2. And then we collected data for a year after we became, became sufficiently stable to get good data. And then we've been working on that data for several months, and now we've re- released the first year of good data. So what are we going to expect to, to learn about uh, the universe as a whole? If this is a map of the whole sky and of, of the, the sort of afterglow of the Big Bang, what can we learn about the universe from this sort of information? Well, there's some things we've learned very effectively from MAP. What we see when we look at the sky are fluctuations that have a characteristic size. By measuring the size of these bumps on the sky, which is about a degree across, we can actually determine that the geometry of the universe is essentially Euclidean geometry. That's what we mean by a flat universe. We can also determine the density of ordinary matter and the density of dark matter very precisely by looking at the magnitude in temperature units of these uh, these, uh, peaks. So we actually see a a measurement of the amount of matter in the universe. This is all of the elements. Everything you study in chemistry from hydrogen, helium on up is only about 4.5% or 4.4% of the total density of the universe. And then we see that dark matter is about 22.5% of the universe, and we see that the rest of the energy density in the universe is actually some kind of very strange dark energy, which could very well be Einstein's cosmological constant. I see. So we've got this uh, one kind of matter that we know all about that's about 4%, and another kind of matter that we know very little about, except for how much there is of it now. It's, what, 23%? And then the rest is uh, not even matter. Is that is that right? It's not even matter. So the universe is a fairly strange place. Well, that's what we're seeing is a fairly strange universe, but it's one that's consistent with all the models of general relativity and cosmology that have been worked out over the last uh, several decades. So essentially, the model that fits the data that we see was fairly well developed in the last... Um, decade of the 20th century. Okay, and uh, of course this is all based on on previous measurements of the CMB. How does how does MAP compare to what has come before it in terms of measuring all these all these parameters? Well, there's a fairly long history of the CMB for a field that's you know only been discovered in the 20th century. But in 1965, the temperature of the CMB that was first measured, I mean the CMB was discovered, and then Over the next few years, people worked to see if there were any non-uniformities in the sky at all. And a very small signal that was one part in a thousand of the temperature was noticed. And that is called the dipole anisotropy. And that tells us how fast the solar system is moving through the rest of the universe, relative to the rest of the universe. And that number is about 370 kilometers per second. And then for the next 15 to 20 years, people were not able to detect any other fluctuations in the temperature. Then the COBE satellite, which was launched in 1989, was able to announce in 1992 that it detected large angular-scale temperature fluctuations. This was the first intrinsic fluctuations in the microwave background. So this is a very 
valuable result. But people then calculated that there should be these one-degree scale fluctuations, and COBE only had a seven-degree beam. It was a very fuzzy view of the universe. And so obviously it became important to go out and measure the one-degree scales. And so the MAP satellite was planned and took several years to build, and it's now produced a map of the sky with a resolution of a little better than a quarter of a degree, so nearly 30 times better than what COBE did. But while MAP was being planned and built, a number of balloon experiments flew and measured small pieces of the sky with higher angular resolution. So there's been a, a great accumulation of data over the last several years indicating the uh, nature of the universe. So this is kind of like putting on a pair of reading glasses to look at the universe compared to what, what we've had before. It just makes things a lot easier to see. Absolutely. See more detail. Um, so it's a, we had a fuzzy view in 1992, and now in 2003 we have a very sharp view. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Professor Ned Wright from UCLA about the result from the MAP satellite, the microwave anisotropy probe. So we've talked a bit about um, the results for cosmology, for learning what the universe is made of, but are there any other sort of things that we can learn about astronomy or about the universe uh, in addition from the uh, cosmic microwave background? Well, basically the cosmic microwave background is an essential tool for studying cosmology. It's almost the DNA of cosmology. But when we, you map the sky, you don't just map the cosmic background, you also map the Milky Way. And so we've learned quite a bit about the distribution of radio sources and the radio sources within the Milky Way. So we have essentially learned quite a bit about interstellar dust grains, relativistic electrons, the cosmic rays in the Milky Way, and also regions where, you know, hot stars have ionized the gas in the Milky Way, and that produces radio emission. I see. So this sounds like a great thing. It's, it's out there for how much longer? Well, we'll be observing for three more years. There's some possibility that if everything is still working and producing good data, that NASA will fund us for um, more than four years total of observations. But right now we're funded for four years of observations. So that's going to improve the, the knowledge that we get by a factor of quite a bit over what we have now. Yes, um, it will actually improve our knowledge by more than what you might expect, which would be the square root of four or two. Mm -hmm. So we'll actually do better than that. So it's going to be quite a, quite a big improvement over the next three years. Excellent. And so if people want to find out more about what's going on with the MAP satellite, where could they look, say, online? Well, the prime place to look is a website that is just for MAP, and that is map.gsfc.nasa.gov. So that's Goddard Space Flight Center, okay. nasa.gov. And I run a cosmology tutorial, which might be useful, and that is www.astro.ucla.edu and then tilde right w-r-i-g-h-t slash cosmolog.htm that's cosmology.html but it was started back in the days when you had IBM PCs and they can only do eight character file names and oh, three character extension, okay. uh, extensions so it's cosmolog.htm okay well go check out more online about the map satellite and about the cosmic microwave background and about cosmology in general thanks very much for being with us today thank you hey thanks a lot Brian and you were just listening to Brian Gerke talking to Ned Wright on the cosmic microwave background you're listening to Berkey Groks here on 90.7 FM KLX in a few moments, we'll find out why stars are colors and what ATP does. 
So stay tuned. Did you ever wonder why stars have different colors? The answer can be found in everyday science. To understand why some stars twinkle blue and others yellow or white, we're going to have to have our heads in the stars. Right now, we're in the very center of a star. Now, stars are made up of hydrogen and helium, with a few other elements thrown in. Here, in the star center, those gases get really compressed. It's really dense and hot, too. You can just feel the pressure. The density increases, the heat rises, until there's a nuclear fusion. That nuclear fusion releases energy, which travels from the center of the star to its surface. The star's surface is unbelievably hot. In fact, it's literally burning up. It's this heat that gives a star its color. The hottest stars are blue giants, with surface temperatures of around 63,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the very coolest are red stars, which burn at a mere 5,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Our particular star has a surface temperature of around 13,500 degrees Fahrenheit, making it a yellow-white star. But it won't be this color forever. See, as time goes by, our star will burn through a lot of its gas. As it does, it cools and changes color from white-yellow to golden-orange to eventually sparkling red. And that's why the stars that dot the night sky color it as well. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Whoa, <laughs> the stars, man. Star, dude, more stars. stars. What are you going to do with all them stars, boy? Put them in my pocket. The only star, again, that I really want to see is that Everyday Science lady who is the star of my heart. We still haven't got her on. I know. Where is she? We gotta, we gotta track her down and find her. Maybe she's the one who sent. By the way, we got like this really cool. I, I don't know if it's like an anniversary gift or what. <laughs> this was kind of cool. They sent us. You know, we got a lot of, lot of junk here at the uh, Berkeley Grox, uh, Berkeley Grox office. Yeah, we have an office, right? Um, Just long mail, right? <laughs> but they sent us two packages. Whoever this is of Avlomil, which, as they claim, is used to reclaim your sensuality. Unfortunately, it's for women. It's for female sensuality. But we have these nice blue tablets, and I'm not really sure what we're going to do with them. <laughs> and my only hope is that perhaps one day the Everyday Science Lady will be here, and we can share some Avramil <laughs> together. 
And now here is the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. How does the ATP power you? Well, ATP is also known as adenosine triphosphate. That's right, it has the three phosphate group, and one of them is very unstable to be attached to it. So when it breaks apart to ATP, the diphosphate, plus an individual phosphate group, it gives energy to your different cell mechanisms, and that's how ATP powers you. I know it's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Hey, yeah, yeah, great, you like to look at them, but they're all white. Why are they so white? Hey, they're the lab rat mice. Or the mice or the lab rats. I don't really know, but they're all white. Why are they white? And who really cares? Well, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us here at croaks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might find some color in your life. What happened to civil rights? And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.